Hello and welcome to this week's IC Alpha podcast. I'm John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined again by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? I'm all right, thanks, John. Excellent. So, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I think there are three three companies for me that stand out, um, hopefully of interest to people. They are Accardo, Next, and I've forgotten the other one. Red Row. <laughs> That's the one, yeah, Red Row. Builders. Build, you want to talk about house builders. Uh, which, which is always, always a fascinating subject. Yes, absolutely. So where should we start? Should we start with Red Row? It's right in front of me. I'm looking at your alpha report. Yeah. What, what do Red yeah. Row's results tell us about what's going in the house building sector at the moment? Well, I don't think they should have surprised anybody. You know, they've had, um, you know, the sites have been closed and they haven't been selling many houses for a good chunk of... Uh, of the spring. So, so the profits are well down. I think what's interesting is what happens over, I mean, is what happens over the next six or 12 months. I think over the next six months, I think life could be quite good for house builders in general. That's for two reasons. First reason is that you haven't got any stamp duty on houses up to £500,000. And you have the last six months of the current help to buy scheme. So I think, and you've seen this in Red Row's results, so Red Row is going to be ramping up production, not only to make up for what it's lost, but to take advantage of this favourable wind, following wind, that is going to end. Are there enough buyers out there if it's going to ramp up production? I mean, you know, there has been talk, lots of talk of pent-up demand, and we are seeing some of that in the housing market. But then we've also got some significant economic challenges ahead. You've, you've got, you know, lots of people still on furlough schemes, uh, lots of people losing their jobs now, coming through the employment figures. Um, you know, is this, are they going to be selling into a weakening market as, as you know, the next six months progresses? I think that's possible, yeah. I mean, the housing market in general, I don't know what it looks around your neck of the woods, but down around my neck of the woods, it's positively buzzing. You know, lots of houses for sale and looks like they're being sold as well. So so the actual market is quite buoyant. And I think, you know, if you talk to or look at what some of the the surveys are coming out and saying that looks looked quite healthy. I think there I think there are two headwinds, two big headwinds. Well more than that actually, but Clearly the point that you've just made about furlough, um, I think a lot of companies are very cautious in their forward planning and there's a huge amount of uncertainty what's going to happen. Because I think if unemployment does go up, then clearly you're going to have fewer people who can afford to move house. The other, the other interesting thing is mortgage availability. And uh, Red Row made a very interesting comment on this. Um, and they were saying that mortgage availability up to 85% loan to value is pretty good. And the pricing of those mortgages, the interest rate on them is pretty good. But this is interesting because the housing market and the help to buy scheme is based on 95% loan to value mortgages. And that's not been a problem is because the taxpayer has been putting 20% in, in the form of an equity loan. Um, and so the lenders have only been lending 75%. But without the help to buy, all these new builds, unless you're a first-time buyer, 
are going to be based on 95, 95% loan-to-value mortgages. I'm not sure how easy... I think it's going to be a lot more difficult for builders to sell in a new... You know, from March March onwards or from April onwards next year under under these circumstances. Do we think, uh, do we think the government might, you know, change the scheme again? You know, it seems to do... It wants to do everything in its power to keep the housing market alive. A stamp duty holiday, for example... I'm sure the building companies are lobbying furiously as we speak to get this scheme extended. I mean, the, the sector, with, with a few notable exceptions like Barclay Group, has become addicted to this scheme. Red Row last year, nearly 43% of all their legal completions were helped to buy. I think it's reasonable to assume that not all of those were first-time buyers. And if you take so, if you take away the support from this scheme, you've already got a problem or a, a headwind in terms of demand, as you, in answer to your question, which is not just specific to Red Row, it's specific to all the house builders. It, it just it just seems to me that this makes it very difficult to invest in. So you you know you've got this this carrot of all of this you know potential current support and and potential further support, extension of help to buy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then if it goes. This is this is a sector in trouble. Yeah, and I, and I think and I think a lot of people know this. And um, you know, we've talked we've talked many times before, John, about you know how housing market activity is, you know, also a big driver of of, of economic activity and uh, all the associated spending that goes on with with people moving house. And, you know, we saw in the financial crisis that the government threw the kitchen sink, basically, at, at the housing market, um, helping out the banks. There was a lot of mortgage holidays, um, essentially to stop what happened in the early 90s, which was, was a load of supply of houses for sale coming onto the market and crashing the market. Um, because of because of the damage it does to to the wealth effect from um, housing equity, um, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if we get something similar to that again. The question is, will it work? Um, the problem the problem with housing um, in this country is that it's the government schemes have actually made things worse. They've actually made houses more expensive rather than, than less expensive. And, you know, the only by, by taking on tax-subsidised expensive debt or equity has this market been able to hold together. Under a normally functioning market where, you know, you, have, you let the forces of demand and supply do their stuff, house prices would be a lot lower than they are now. And arguably, we wouldn't be having people rightly going on about issues of affordability and you know the 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 scheme the scheme definitely delivered a win for profit um it's showing signs it has shown signs of wearing out over the last 12 months and i think that um you know what's happening over the next six months is going to start focusing minds um in a big way because I think it's going to be really difficult. Uh, but, but the interesting thing is, is that the share prices now of the building companies seem to reflect 
that toughening outlook. Red Rose shares, for example, they trade below their net asset value now, which has usually been an indication of either distress or cheapness. What, what I find really interesting is that we're not seeing any write-down of land values amongst, amongst the major builders. You know, if you look at Red Row, and I look into this in my alpha report, you know, the, the selling price assumption on Red Row's land bank is at current levels. That's what they are, are assuming the, the gross development value of all their land bank is. So there's no assumption of, of prices falling. Now, that may, may turn out to be true. Um, but the, but the, the lesson of looking at this sector over 30 years is that these, the profits and the, the value of house builders, they are geared plays on land prices, which themselves are geared plays on house, house prices. Yeah. So it looks pretty difficult to me. Yeah, sounds like a sector where we should be treading cautiously at best. You, you talked about how uh, housing and the wealth effect uh, has an impact on other sectors. Uh, obviously, one of those is retail. Um, so let's have a chat about Next, um, <clears throat> obviously Britain's biggest uh, high street retailer these days. Um, it had some numbers out this week. They were pretty grim, but not quite as grim as expected. Yeah, they were grim. Um, and, and, and the high street part of it was, re- was really grim. I mean, I mean the, swing, the swing on profitability on the high streets was... I think just off the top of my head, there I think they moved from like 175 million of profits for that for their retail business to uh, um, about 56 million of losses on sales that were down over 60 percent. The online business fared a lot better. Clearly, you know, if the shops are, the shops are shut, people have ordered online, and we've seen that we've seen that trend. Right across the, the the retail sector, but it but it didn't grow. Um, it didn't grow online, did it? I mean, oh no, 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 it didn't grow. I mean, the the sales the sales shrunk by I think uh, sixteen or fifteen sixteen percent, and the profits were down, you know, nearly fifty million or around fifty million. But it still it was still profitable. For me, the key takeaway from from these results is not really what what the past has been. It's what the company has done and what it will continue to do to shape it to cope with a changing world going forward. And I think, you know, if you spend a, spend a bit of time reading the next results release, and you need to spend a bit of time because it's very long and it's very detailed. Typical, typical next. Very good. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. I think there's a lot of good things going on here. I mean, uh, you, you, you know, again, you've got, you know, you've got some great evidence of how good a retailer this business is. You know, I'll give you an example. They they took a, took a load of stock out of this business without completely trashing the profits. Yes, there were some stock write-offs, but they were able to get rid of a lot more stock um, than they thought they would, which allowed them to generate a lot of cash, um, reduce debt, and reduce the amount of stock that they have to discount when the shops shops open again. But but I think what's what's really interesting is the, the discussion about their investment spending. And you know the bulk of the investment spending now, probably sort of over sixty percent of it, 
is going to be on building more warehouses um, to be on, to be online. And the good thing about being online is is that okay, you have to spend money to make sure you've got enough storage and distribution capacity. But generally, the ongoing maintenance of that is a lot less than running a lot of shops. So, so not only do you have capacity to, to grow, you also are creating a business that is less capital intensive and therefore better cash flow. And, you know, this company now is in a great position as well when you take into account what it's doing with its um, store estate. And there was a really interesting bit in the results, which was saying that for a parcel of 60 stores, it halved the rent on them. It's renegotiated the rents on these, these stores and it's halved the rent, uh, which is bad news for the landlord, but it's better than no rent at all. I mean, the, um, if, it, if it's shifting more online, does it need the size of retail estate that it has now? I mean, is it, No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, and the, the interesting thing is, is that 82% now of its store estate has a break clause now within five years, five years or, or less. This company over the next five years is going to, in my opinion, is going to radically slim down its store estate. And it's going to keep, keep the ones in good areas, in out-of-town retail parks, and in areas where you can do click and collect. And this is going to make Next a much leaner, fitter business. Um, so generally, that, that was okay. The other thing which was, I thought was quite surprising was the, um, the, level, of, the level of bad debt. Um, something I've looked at and I've written about um, in the past. And Next is a business that is very dependent on giving credit to its customers. It has... You know, a loan book of over a billion pounds and it charges very chunky interest rates on it and it's a significant source of profit and actually the the bad debt experience in the first half of the year wasn't that bad and they, they've nudged up the provision for bad debt by about 20 million for the for the rest of the year but so far and that was done because of their anxieties on the end of furlough but so far, it's looking all right. Now, whether that whether that proves out proves to be the case, uh, I'm not so sure. But I think one it's one of the major reasons why um, profit guidance has gone up a, a lot. I mean, two months ago they were guiding towards making 195 million pounds of pre-tax profit for the year to January, and they're now saying they're going to make hopefully make 300 yeah that was that was the mean, num- that, that was the number that jumped out of me that's that's a big upgrade yeah big upgrade but obviously it's a lot a lot less than what they were making big upgrade under the circumstances absolutely and and the share price and the share price obviously reacted reacted well to that so you know it's a difficult sector and this 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 company is always always surprises me about how how profitable it is and it's it's clearly a very very good business and i think that i think the key takeaway for me is that yes it might be difficult for the next few months but this this is a this has always been a very good business or certainly for the last five ten years it has and it looks like it's getting better uh, and that this business is on a much better platform and it's going to be 
could look quite nice. You know, it could be producing some pretty nice numbers if uh, if everything goes right. Yeah. In you know, in a, in say a couple of years' time. Yeah, absolutely. What what is what's the valuation it like at the moment? I guess it's hard to to really say given the the sort of the the collapse in profits. Yeah. Cheap. You would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Take a guess. <laughs> Should we talk about Ocado, talking of unusual valuations? So, so Ocado has found itself in the sweet spot of COVID-19, everyone's shopping from home, and its shares have been rocketing this year. Um, but you're not convinced by this one? No, I'm not. Neither um, am I, you know, for what it's worth. Maybe, maybe, I just, maybe I just have to put my hands up and say that I just don't get it. It's clearly doing very well. I mean, the, the trading statement this week is saying that its um, its UK retail sales were up by more than half uh, the last 13 weeks. Um, it's now got Marks and Spencers on board from the 1st of September. I think that's a good thing. You know, just my view, but I think probably Marks and Spencer does make the best quality food um, for sale to the, you know, the general public. So I think that will work well for, for both parties. Um, what's what? What I always come back to when when I'm looking at looking at um, Cardo is the, the the bull case is on selling its robots and its automated warehouse or customer fulfillment centres or CFCs as they're called to other to other grocery companies across the world and that's that's where they're going to make a lot of money and that's why the stock is so successful yeah i've heard i've heard one analyst describe it as the microsoft of uh food retail right so okay but i mean i i just i look at it in a you know i'm a bit of a simpleton you know i look at and i try and look at things you know just at the cold hard facts and i think what is this what is this product what are these technologies what are these robots and warehouses trying to do um what do they actually give to the buyer of them so, you know, if I'm Kroger in America, um, you know, how is this going to make my business better? And and how is and more importantly, how is this going to make my shareholders better off? And my my big sort of thing that always gets me scratching my head um with Ocado is that Ocado seems to be selling selling a technology that it itself cannot make a lot of money from. So and and so, if you actually look at you know look at the profitability of Ocado's UK retail business, and you look at the it only gives EBITDA, which is not a proper figure for a for a um, a retail business because assets do have to be replaced, delivery vans have to be replaced. I was going to say there are a lot of depreciating assets in in this business. It's a very physical business. Well, vans, vans do tend to be replacing. Yeah, indeed. Um, that, that figure has always bothered me for precisely so that looking reason. So looking at profits before van replacement costs <laughs> and possibly, you know, obviously things in warehouses need replacing as well. Robots might, you know, not last forever. Um, but if we look at their EBITDA margins, they're about 4%. And... Um, if you look at Tesco, which obviously does sell a lot online as well, their EBITDA margins are about seven, seven and a half percent. So the margins, the margins on 
internet only retail with Ocado warehouses and robots and vans is inferior to Tesco, what Tesco's and Sainsbury's and Morrison's make from a predominantly store-based business. Playing devil's advocate, though, Ocado's market share of food retail in the UK is tiny. I mean, it's less than it's less than a percent. And if you were to be build Ocado to the scale of someone like Tesco, would would it then be more profitable potentially, given the the efficiencies of its warehouses and its technology? Is it a scale, is the- it a scale problem? Uh, there is a there there's a there's a warehouse there's a CFC warehouse leverage effect. Now, I'm not sure what that is at the moment because obviously one of them burnt down, and um, they kicked Mor- Morrison's kindly made way for made way for Ricardo to give it some space. So there is some slack, probably still some slack in warehouse capacity, and therefore there is there is the ability to leverage sales growth and you'll see you saw that in in the guidance this week um so there is there is some leverage but if you want to want to keep growing out of that you then have to spend more money you know you have to spend millions and millions on new cfcs and new distribution centers and for me for me the real real issue with all the all the food retailers um selling groceries on the online is the delivery costs. Now, I've no doubt that a robot and an automated warehouse can pick pick more efficiently than somebody scurrying around with a trolley up and down the aisles um, and probably do it cheaper. But you've still got to deliver the stuff. Um, and, you know, that that's expensive because you are selling at the same price as, as in store. Obviously, a cardo isn't because it hasn't got any stores. But it's but it has to but it but it's but its prices are driven by what its competitors charge, and you know I'm just really really puzzled by this. I mean I look at Kroger, okay, so Kroger is is potentially the biggest driver of Ocado's um, share price, and Kroger has the exclusive rights to the technology in the U.S. and Kroger is going up against massive competition in the form of Walmart, um, Costco, which is which is a brilliant retailer, um, and then of course Amazon. And Kroger um, initially ordered three warehouses, oh sorry, three three CFCs and, and a lot of robots. And in June it signed a deal to take another three. So it now has six it will have six. Which means that Ocado will have to take the costs of building those, but it will get the will get the revenue back and the cash flow back later on. And Kroger, the the bull case is that Kroger has um, has the scope to build twenty, maybe twenty of these. But I'm not sure what what it does for Kroger's Kroger's returns. It may it may be that Kroger feels that it has no alternative to go for this and that its shareholders will have to suck it up. But the point is this, is that we, we come back to the real issue, which is the valuation of Ocado's shares, which give or take a few pounds is about £20 billion. This company is not expected to make an operating profit until 2024. Um, it has £2.5 billion of capital invested. So... If you look at a retailer's return on capital, you know, 10% might be 
what the likes of Sainsbury's are making on a good day or Morrison's making on a good day. So that would mean that you've got to make about £250 million of profit on what you've invested already. Ricardo's nowhere near that. But if you actually if you actually try and get a feel for for what these what these um, solutions contracts are worth, so selling selling the stuff to foreign retailers, and I've written about this a couple of times now. Buried in the accounts is a note, um, which actually tells you what the future revenues are and what the expected costs are of the contracts that have been signed. So you can then get a view of what the profits will be. Now, in the last annual report, which would have come out, I think, January, that figure was £2.4 billion. Now, that's not £2.4 billion a year or £2.4 billion in today's money. That's £2.4 billion of cumulative future profits over probably 15, 20 years or maybe even more. On every CFC that it's built for... For someone overseas, or in, correct, yeah, yeah, you've got now got a market capitalization of twenty billion. Now, the retail business, I mean, they sold half of it for Marks and Spencer for seven hundred and fifty million, which looked a very rich price. So you said that the UK business was worth one and a half billion, which you know would be about fifteen times EBITDA, which is punchy then the rest of this business is, is supposedly being valued by the market at 18 and a half billion and yet and yet the and yet the cumulative value at the moment of, of anticipated profits is 2.4 billion um, you'll add a bit more to that with the three three extra cfcs that uh, kroger has kroger has signed up for but i i think that the gap between the numbers and, and what's implied in the share price is very, very big. And I, I can't help thinking this is like the UK's equivalent of Tesla, where, where I think investors, and I don't mean to be unkind by saying this, but if it comes out that way, I'll, have to, you know, I'll wear it. But it seems to me that the people have got almost blinded by the technology here and are ignoring the economics and, and what, what this technology actually produces in terms of hard profit. Um, there's no doubt that this technology is impressive. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's good, and we should, we should applaud thing, you know, innovation like this. But if I'm a shareholder and I'm an investor, it always comes back to, you know, what does this do for me? How much money does it make me? And I think that... I, I, you know, and I, I admit I just don't get it because you... because it seems it seems that the best case scenario is already priced in and maybe more so. Yeah, more I, so. I, I, don't, I mean, I must admit, I'm in I'm in the same camp. But you know, I, I I've been bearish on a cardo for a very long time, been wrong for a very long time. Uh, you know, sometimes you just can't fight fight the market. I mean, yeah, yeah I agree. Um, so I... so where does that I mean where does that leave up? We, we I would avoid it. But that doesn't say yeah, that so the share I, prices are not going to is not going to keep rising. I, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, but it but it's like you know we we live in a in a strange world where you know things trade on news flow. You know, you and I are old enough to remember when things traded on clicks, mouse clicks, 
fucking you know back Absolutely. price per click eyeballs price per click yeah <laughs> um it's not it's not quite as silly as that but it's difficult difficult to see that it isn't it isn't a very speculative investment it's made people a lot of money um well, it's made it's, it's but, made it's um founder and uh, management team quite a lot of money it's a pretty interesting yeah, uh, uh, conversation scheme there as paul jackson yeah, wrote was, in the magazine yeah. a few weeks ago yeah, yeah that caused a few, caused a bit of upset and you can understand why oh uh, yeah and, and sometimes i agree with you john i think sometimes you just have to say i don't understand this um and and, and i struggle to to join the dots together but i wish it well yeah absolutely that's brilliant, Phil. Well, it's been great to chat, and uh, hopefully I'll be chatting next week. I'm actually in Southwold on a, on a little holiday, but I think I might take my podcasting gear and we'll chat when I'm there. But uh, good to hear your thoughts again, Phil. Speak soon. Thanks a lot, John. Speak to you later.